Hello and welcome to another edition of Trash Arts Tick, episode 12. With myself Ryan, we got Sam and we got Jackson. Happy Easter everyone, hope you're all well during this lockdown period. Um, on today's show we uh, have decided that we're not going to talk uh, about industry in particular. This week there's not really been anything um, going on so we thought we'd give you guys a little bit of an update in terms of what we're doing. Um, then we actually had the pleasure, myself and Sam had an a interview um, with Danny Thompson, who's the screen queen um, on the British independent film scene. Um, and then after that, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the British film scene and uh, yeah, having a bit of a discussion around it. Without further ado, then, TA. So, yeah, um, so we've been trying to look at kind of films that we can do. A couple of our films were rescheduled. We were to do um, Terror Black Tree Forest, which was a remake of Dustin Ferguson's film. That had to be rescheduled because it was set in the woods. But we hope to get that done some point within the summer. And uh, that will be coming out on SCS Cinema, which is Dustin Ferguson's um, <clears throat> VOD site. On top of that, though, we've kind of looked at films that, you know, like ones that are still in post-production. Can we push them forward a bit. Uh, so there's a film we did last year called Decline, which you were in. Yeah, we spoke about Decline in great detail a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yes, we talked about it last week within our slasher section. Well, essentially, like, because we did some research on um, those sort of films and just the way trailers were done with kind of grindsploitation in the 60s and 70s, we start thinking of different ways you can do trailers, so we're going to do a, a different kind of teaser trailer for Decline next week. We're going to get you back in the mask, <laughs> get you behind the screen, and yeah, so there'll be a, a Decline teaser trailer hopefully out, maybe not next week, but by the week after. Um, <clears throat> we still have our anthology, You're Going to Be a Star. The deadline for that is April 20th. We've had some interesting responses so far. I'm very happy with the people who've given us videos. And yeah, if you want to get involved, please contact us either through the social medias of Trash Arts UK or um, Instagram Trash Arts Film or just send us an email, trashartsportsmouth at gmail.com. We also have, um, as we said last week, Millennial Killer is um, released later this month. So yes, there is a new trailer out for that. You might see it on the YouTube channel. It's a sort of Grindhouse trailer. Me and Jackson were watching loads of Grindhouse kind of trailers. And we, we, you know, people expect that kind of 80s sort of trailer with the deep voice. And we really liked the crazy mavericks of the 60s on the more British kind of grindhouse sort of trailers. So we went more in that direction. But you can find that on the YouTube channel and uh, please leave us a comment to let us know what you think of it. It was, uh, it was actually really interesting uh, watching through that compilation of, of all those trailers. I recommend it to anyone out there. Watch a compilation of grindhouse 60s trailers. Uh... That was, it was like seeing something out of an entirely different universe of film. It, it, didn't, it, it was something, to me, was like really eye-opening on how you could make a trailer and how you could do one so differently from what you see everywhere nowadays. I was yeah. in the other room working and I didn't know what the heck was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and then me and Jack actually were talking about it afterwards that whenever you've watched enough of them trailers you start reading everything like the trailer voice yeah <laughs> that so, was interesting so yeah on top of that we've been just trying to get a lot of the post-production on films i'm not going to mention every single title it's too many 
But one of the things that we, we have tried to do, and we've tried to, well, we've noticed other creators are trying to do the same thing, is use the time to write. Mm -hmm. So we've been writing different films. Some set in the scenario of being stuck in this for a little bit longer than planned. A lot of isolation film ideas are coming forward. But we've also been able to just explore things that you don't really need to think about when it's going to be produced, more just getting that story down. Cool. Cheers for that, Sam. Um, yeah, guys, moving on. Uh, so this week we actually had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Danny Thompson, screen queen on the um, well British independent film scene. Honestly, I didn't know I was going to be involved in this. Um, For you in the deep end. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever had to read Sam's handwriting, but yeah. I, I doubt many people have. <laughs> but yeah, we hope you enjoy. And uh, here it is. So... Guys, we're um, joined by Danny Thompson, and um, yeah, basically, we're going to have a, a great interview. going to ask Danny a few questions. Um, so, Danny, what made you want to get into acting? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what made me get into Do you know what? I think I probably always wanted to do it. Even as a really young kid, I'd be watching, it was the Aussie soaps, and I'd always be like, I want to go out, and I want to be like Kylie. Um but I grew up in a small village in the middle of the countryside. So it's one of those things that nobody knows. It's not a real job. Like, people don't really grow up and become an actor. Yeah. So I kind of went, you know, finished school, did college, did all kinds of different things because I just didn't know what to do. And then I started modelling. And then the acting kind of, I kind of just fell into it. So it wasn't to begin with, you know, the, the kind of dreams had gone out of the window and it just kind of, it just organically, I ended up there somehow. Fair. <clears throat> That's interesting though, that you kind of just fell into it. Um, so Danny, tell us about the first film that you ever sort of acted in. Um, the first film, so the question I got was the first acting role, I was going to say it was a school play, but the first thing, the first proper thing I did, it was actually TV, and it was before I'd gone to drama school, and this is how I'd kind of fallen into it, I kind of started doing a little bit of extra work when I was modelling, um, just for a bit of extra money, and I got asked to do something, which was a speaking part, and so I hadn't been to drama school at the time, I hadn't done any acting apart from school plays and um it was for psychoville and it was a t it's a tiny tiny little bit i mean if you ever watched it it was a blink and you'll miss me moment which episode but they did they did give me dialogue and it, the thing they used the dialogue for was actually um like an extra clip that you could watch on their website it wasn't actually in the show because it was oh. quite rude and it was about um it was it was basically all the characters in the tv show had a past and the the midget guy was a porn star so they had me play a porn star Snow White and it, when they sent me the script it was one of these things if I read the script and I was like no way if it was anybody other than the BBC it would you know you'd have read the script and it would have been an absolute no but obviously it was BBC so you kind of trust them um, so in the actual on the actual TV thing I'm in a TV within the TV and it's for like a second but at the time you could, I think you could watch extra footage online. I'm sure it's long gone now. Thank God. But yeah, that was my first. That was my first. So I kind of jumped straight in with something a bit crazy. That's an interesting way to come into it. To yeah. be fair, very interesting. I remember that episode as well. It's a very darkly comic <laughs> take on it. 
I'm just on the TV in the TV. So yeah, <laughs> I guess I mean, next time. For a people, I was blocked, yeah, are. long time ago. God, I, I can't personally say that me or Sam's experience has been um, quite extravagant as that. So <laughs> hats off. Um, so Danny, what what kind of roles are you interested in? Because I do the horror thing, and I'm kind of now become known for doing the horror thing, that, again, it wasn't, I didn't set out just to do that. So after the Psychoville experience, um, I was still modelling, then I ended up getting asked to do another film just to play a stripper, you know, obviously typecast roles for the time I was modelling. And then just being on set, I kind of, that's how I realised I wanted to get into acting, and having moved to London by that time, it was a bit more, you know, accessible, and I ended up going to drama school. Um, so I trained as an actor at drama school and it was a screen acting school um, and I didn't set out just to do horror afterwards but as soon as I left I ended up just meeting a couple of people that were making horror films and they offered me little bits in there and then from there it just kind of was word of mouth and it just kind of it just kind of went that way kind of fell into place honest, I've always loved it is and I've always loved horror it's always been my favourite genre to be honest I mean you won't get me to sit down and watch a rom-com or anything I'd <laughs> rather literally be tortured like I can't, I can't cope with all those kinds of lovey-dovey romance films so for me um, I just want to stick with the horror I'm happy sticking with the horror like I know people say they're worried about typecasting. I'm not at all. Like, I love horror films, and I love, like, the big-budget ones, and I love the low-budget ones. So, for me, just anything that's within the genre, as I'm long as you love it, happy to do. I suppose yeah, that's the most important true. thing. How do you feel being seen as, like, a, a screen queen? Oh, I, I do like it. I mean, like I said, I didn't set out just to go that way, but now that now I've kind of gone down that path, I think it's good to know what you do and do it well so you know rather than just kind of chasing all these different jobs and hundreds and hundreds of auditions I actually have gotten into a, a lucky position where people do tend to offer me things now um, within the horror genre and I know a lot of people that work within it and you know I'm busy so I'm, I'm you know I, I, I'm usually always busy apart from at the moment Obviously, we're on lockdown. I'm not very busy at all. But, <laughs> I don't think any of us are. No, generally, um, yeah, no, generally, I love it. So I like being immersed in the world of horror. That's good. That's good. So, just out of curiosity, um, how how do you feel you want to be seen as an actor, or <clears throat> how do you want to be remembered as an actor? Is probably a better way to put it. I want to be remembered. Um, God, I don't. Well, I think I would. I'd like to be remembered as as a horror actress. I, I would say screen princess. I don't feel like I'm old enough or I've done enough to be worthy of the title of queen yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think by that by the time I'm retired, then maybe I'd like to be remembered as uh, a screen queen, UK screen queen. Nice, nice. Um, so you recently appeared in um, <coughs> Sam. You're gonna have to. Pandemonium. Pandemonium. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> my How was that? recent film. I've known MJ, MJ Dixon, from my coat for, for a long time. And I actually met him at a Horror on Sea festival um, a few years previously. And, you know, always kind of stayed in touch, but I'd never worked with them before, the team Myco. So it's Mike and his wife, Anna. Um, and so this is the first time. And I actually think I saw the, I saw the ad 
casting and uh, I kind of messaged her and I was like what about me she was like well funny you should say that we've actually written a role for you and we were hoping oh, nice. that you, you know that you would do it if we offered it to you and I was like yes hadn't even read it I just said yes um, but it, they're amazing to work with I mean they're lovely lovely people anyway like they're good friends now um, but yeah I mean they kind of do everything themselves. So, I mean, Anna, at the time we were filming, she was about eight months pregnant and she was running around just like producing a movie and doing everything. Um, Fair play to her. Like she's, she, yeah, she just like, you, you couldn't get her to sit down. You're like, have a rest. And she's like, no. And I mean, Mike, you know, he just knows what he's doing. So they're quite a well-oiled machine. So, I mean, they're amazing to work with. Um, and I don't know if you've seen it yet, but... I might come back if they do it a part two. So. Nice, nice. I don't want to ruin the ending for you. Don't want to ruin the ending for you. I personally haven't seen it, but we got um, we got a Blu-ray copy of it in our yeah. front room. So I, um, you have to wait until the end, though. You have to watch the after the end credits bit. Oh, nice. Now I might come back. There you go. <laughs> See, I, I thought you and uh, Michael knew each other a lot longer because I remember I met you. I think it was Lonely Hearts when we took Lonely Hearts to Horror Sea last year. Yeah, I did know them, I just hadn't worked with them. Ah, that's the thing, so I was looking, I was going through the IMDb to do a bit of research on you, and yeah, like, I thought there was going to be a lot more Maiko short films popping up, because it just, I don't know, I guess it was just... Um, well, I mean, they're busy, I know they're, I know they're doing Slash House 3, and then he's already said to me, you know, a possibility of a, a second pandemonium, or, so, or something where the characters might come back, I don't, I mean, they, all of their films are kind of within a universe, so... You know, you can't have the same person popping up in different films because they'd, they'd, be, they'd have to be the same character because it's the same universe. So um, I'm not sure, really. But I know they're always busy. I know he's got a lot going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they may be, they may be doing more shorts. When, when well, are you coming to work for us? <laughs> hey? <laughs> so when are you, that's my accent. <laughs> I was like, when are you coming to work with us? Why don't you mean? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe. Always, always happen. pitching. Um, <laughs> yeah. We're actually interviewing Maiko uh, this weekend, so we should have an episode talking to them about all their projects in the next couple of weeks. Oh, well, that's amazing. Now you'll have to say to him, like, what about this pandemonium too that I hear something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Insider job. <laughs> um, Danny, yeah. so talk to us about any upcoming projects. I know with the situation that's going on right now, it's kind of a little bit scarce in terms of roles. Yeah. But um, is, is there anything outside of that that you've got planned? Like, talk to well, us a little I, bit about um, that. I mean, I started the year really busy. So my January, I was kind of straight in with a film in January. So I did Eating Miss Campbell, um, Liam Regan's film. Um, and then I had a lot in the pipeline. So I was supposed to be filming something called Dear Sister Margaret. Um, and I actually get to play Mother Superior in this one. Oh, nice. Um, and and Mike is actually, I don't know, I'm not sure what he's, I'm not sure if he's, I don't think he's directing it. It's not his, it's not his project, but he is, he is heavily involved in that. So I'm going to get another chance to work with them again. Um, so that's still happening, but obviously that had to be stopped and it's going to be rescheduled and it's, you know, just if and when, obviously this is all over. Um, also got, Power Tool Cheerleaders versus Boy Band of the Screaming Death. What a title. <laughs> um, which is, um, it's a Pat Higgins film with Charlie Bond, James Hayman Morton. Um, and I think I'm 
I'm not sure how many people they've cast. They cast me early on. We've actually got a read through tomorrow. We're doing it online just to, you know, try and be busy That's throughout cool. the lockdown. But we were due to film some promo stuff for that. And obviously that's had to be postponed. Um, and then I've got another film that is called, what is it called? Blood Demons. <laughs> that's how I have to write stuff. <laughs> Yeah, Blood Demons, that's another one we're supposed to be filming in June, and he's booked locations, and at the moment he's held on to them. He's, I think it's wishful thinking um, that may well also be postponed. So I've got loads of stuff. Um, and then I'm also writing at the moment, so I've written the okay. first draft, but it's come up short on pages for something. So that's my that's my lockdown work for this week. That was a part... work on that. Was that part of Pat Higgins' writing that he did at the Horror and Sea to write a... Well... Sort of. Now, I'd had an idea for absolutely ages. Like, literally, it's been about three or four years, and I've, I'd written a few notes and it never gone past that. So I did take Pat Higgins' How to Write a Bloody Movie in 30 Days um, Masterclass at Horror on Sea. I think I just needed that sort of kick. And for me, with writing, because I'm not, you know, I've done bits of writing, did writing at drama school, I can't, you know, but I'm not a writer. So I write bits and I just kind of stick them together and hope for the best. So I just needed a bit of help with structure. So I felt like Pat's class did kind of give me the, the nudge I needed in the right direction. But I'm still 30 pages short, so I might need another kick from somebody else to finish this. <laughs> You're still doing well. You're a lot more pages in than probably most people, myself included. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't okay. worry. I wouldn't worry. Um, Danny, last question really for me. Uh, is there kind of a dream role that you would like to play? I'd like to do something that kind of ends up being really iconic. So whether it's a you know an iconic horror character, um, that would be really cool. And I haven't done much where I'm like sort of fantasy stuff. So I'd like to be some kind of demon, like or, or made to be you know rather than looking like me, I'd rather I'd like to do something where I get to be you know made up of aesthetics and really ugly or something. Like I think that would be really fun just to like you know like the Buffy demons. Those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, I'd, love yeah. To, I'd love to play like a you know a big kind of demon character that would be fun that'd be awesome i would look forward to seeing you in that kind of role to be fair i I shot something called mannequin last year and so and i i i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about this maybe (laughs) well i did have some crazy makeup in that but i still kind of looked like me so i think i'd be more more crazy you gotta go ott for that then yeah (laughs) No, Danny, we really appreciate the fact that you've, um, well, let us interview you. And, um, yeah, really appreciate it. Really cool. No worries. Well, stay safe. Same to you. You stay safe. Take care of yourself. I will try. Okay, speak later. No worries. Have a good one, Danny. Bye. Bye. So, guys, um, now we're going to be discussing British film and um, how it's kind of changed throughout the years. Well, this is the thing, when you look at how many different kind of film archetypes that have been over, like, British cinema, throughout the years it's been very much like kind of what kind of movements are going on. So we, we were sort of looking at how many different, I suppose they are subgenres, but British cinema isn't a genre, you know, it's just where those films were, like, mainly focused around, either culturally or not necessarily where they're shot, because, again, money comes into a lot of that. And a lot of films that people would assume are British, the money's come from different places. But when you look at films that have more of um, a cultural impact, 
in particular when you look at either political or social changes. So without getting a bit too history-esque, if you look at the 60s, the 60s saw a swing more towards working class kind of kitchen sink dramas, which were trying to show what life was like, what British life was like back those times. But it also had that contrasting point where culture was like, well, hey, let's all have a great time. We've all got the best music in the world. And, you know, it was the swinging 60s. So you get that depiction as well. Well, a lot of those um, kitchen sink dramas, uh, I, like a lot were made for TV, weren't they? Because there were things like Play For Today, there were different, like, uh, you know, they would have a feature length um, TV show essentially um uh, but it wasn't it was a different story every week kind of thing um but yeah these were these were essentially films produced for television and they, a lot of a, a lot of them was yeah kitchen sink uh, dramas so it's just interesting that with that there came a, a totally different way of distributing the films as well because they wouldn't be going to cinemas and and that kind of thing it was much more um straight to the household that's the funny thing like with, because um, <clears throat> yeah, you're right, there was a, there, even, even if you want to stick with TV, even Coronation Street at the beginning was seen more as a working class kind of, this is what it's like, drama, rather than a soap, because soaps didn't exist. Mm. But one of the weird things with British cinema is that an archetype is working class films. And you can get them from like, you know, really dark stuff, but you also get the comedy side with um, Full, Full Monty. Is it Full Monty? Full Monty. Yeah, Full Monty, Bendelite Beckham. They're all working class stories with some sort of heroic. The community came together and we won. Attack the block more recently. Yeah, there's yeah even like inversions within horror. There's it's it's interesting that you know being working class there's a frustration to it because a lot of these films aren't always made by people from a working class background. And I'm not saying they have to be. But it makes you see these stories where there's a big heroic reaction and stuff, and you're like, that's not reality. But then you get the really dark films that reflect that more. And sometimes it can be too grim at that time, you can watch back on it. But I mean, Sight hasn't exactly got not grim. It's sort of been on a grim path upwards, you know? It's very morbid. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. When you were originally talking, like, um, <clears throat> and the cultural change in the 60s, and very much being about working class, I do remember when I was in school, we were um, assigned to watch a film called Kez. Um, Ken Loach. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that came out in 1969, and yeah, absolutely cracking film. But going off everything that you said, it's like a working class kid, essentially, that befriends a kestrel. And like that's what the film is, and it's like his trials and tribulations dealing with his own life, and then he reaches out and has that friend in the form of a bird. <laughs> like that's the other thing with British cinema when it comes to those working class films. There's a uh, there's ones like Ken Loach who can dramatize normality perfectly, and then you get the more over dramatized ones, which are still good. Like like uh, the film Pride. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that about the. The, basically, like the the fights that the um, like the LGBTQT community experienced, um, and at the same time, like the coal miners with Thatcher and stuff. It's a good film, but it, it fits very much into that like we come together and that British spirit of coming together, and that's the thing with the working class thing. It's either no one's there for you, so you're <laughs> fucked, or let's all come together and it'll be all right in the end. 
And that seems to be a big, a big archetype within those sort of British films. And it works as well with like British gangster films. Yeah. And um, it's the same sort of archetype other than they maybe do have riches, but they've always got that or they've come from that grounded background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. When you look at British gangster films, it's it's always been a bit lighter. I don't know whether or not um, maybe because we we interviewed Jason earlier and he was talking about it, but that kind of East End gangsters have always got a bit of a cheek to them, a bit of a laugh to them, you know. And you see much more British cinema, at least more like probably because of Guy Ritchie. That sort of like yeah, it was they they seem to subvert away from the violence or away from the extremities of the crimes, and more just be like, well, you know, those, those archetypes, I, I can't think of a single East End gangster from London, but the craze, you know, those kind of people. Yeah. Cinema's always wanted to, especially British cinema's never really wanted to show, there's a downward spiral nonetheless, because those stories are built towards a downward spiral, but it always wants to kind of build them up as being big personalities. Like one of my personal favorite of the British gangster films, Sexy Beast. The sexy beast is sexy beast is surreal, strange, and like just it's not what you expect from that, but it's also got everything you do expect from that. You've got those that, that typical banter, the back and forth, that sort of like they're insulting each other, but it's all a bit of a laugh. Cockney slang. Yeah, I feel like it's a nice bookend to the um, to that sort of genre generally mm. because it, it feels like. You can imagine the the prequel um, to that essentially, where they you know in the seventies, um, and you've got like you can you can see those old films in that of, of you know like the Long Good Friday and stuff like that, where where these characters could be from those films, and then they're they're, they're expats that have moved out and now are sort of running things in a totally different place and and trying trying to be retired from that from that lifestyle. Um, but you know it's it's a lifestyle, not a job, really. So they get dragged back into it, um, and that's what I, I loved about Sexy Beast. I just felt like it really did, um, almost sort of, uh, just get that genre perfectly. That sort of ending of that time period. You're right. It's like taking those characters from like, even if you haven't seen the films, you know what kind of characters they are, like Get Carter, hmm. or hey. even, or Italian Job. You know, those sort of films where even even to some degree, if anyone's seen it, the um, film Performance, it's a 1970 gangster film with Mick Jagger. And it's by Nicholas Roge, who also did another British film with David Bowie called The Man Who Fell to Earth. But with Performance, it's a gangster film, but it's also like a sexual drugs, you know, let's all go kind of crazy sort of film. But those sort of characters, you can imagine, they would be the kind of characters, and that's what Sex Beast does so well. They... When they're at that point where they're like, everything's perfect, and then, is it Frank? Is it Frank that turns up? I think Most psychos true. are called Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's always a Frank. I just thought of Frank Butcher. Is it Frank Butcher <laughs> from EastEnders? See, I went straight to Blue Velvet when I think about Franks. <laughs> but yeah, like when he turns up, it is that reminder of, hey, you're violent. You guys aren't out of this. Just because you've had your little time in the 70s, it's always going to come back and haunt you. Well, I think I think there's there's a, a feeling of that also in the long, uh, long Good Friday, where I, I mean, there's this scene that is such a powerful scene where he, uh, the the gangster, the main ca character, I cannot remember his name, um, is is giving a speech on, on a boat, uh, a boat, and they're travelling down the Thames, and you see like 
I think it's Tower Bridge behind them as he's as he's coming along, and um, and this moment of just absolute joy where he's he's getting all of the sort of he he's essentially feels like he's on top of the world and winning, and then like the downward spiral to the point at the at the end of the film where on that very same boat he's stabbing his friend in the neck with a with a broken <laughs> bottle. It's it's savage and and so uh, you know. It really shows that downward spiral again. The same, the sexy beast mm. of you know, you you go from that high moment and bring it all the way down to the lowest possible, nastiest thing that you you could imagine for these characters. Well, there's an eighties film called Mona Lisa, another British film with Bob Hoskins, and essentially, yeah, it, it shows you all the gangster life and it brings you back down. I mean, you could say that's an attribute of most gangster films, but with British films, it really feels kind of. Grounded, or at least a good British gangster film. It's, it feels very grounded when you get back to reality. It's not about all of the like you've seen American film, and I, I know you might not like this, but in Goodfellas, it's removing the glamorization <laughs> of the scandalized idea of being a gangster, and instead, you know, they're, they're straight back to ordinary life. Whereas in most British gangster films, it, it tends to be more that there's going to be a violent reaction. I think. I have seen Get Carter. I could keep getting flashes of it. I'm pretty sure Get Carter has a really miserable ending. Or that's Mona Lisa, one or the other. I think one thing to touch on there as well is, yeah, I love Goodfellas and stuff, but <clears throat> yeah, Goodfellas almost glorifies the characters to almost a point beyond reality. It's yeah. kind of, it's a, it's a spectacle. When you do watch um, British gangster films, there's all, I don't know if it's just because we are British, um, but there's a, a real realism to it. You could almost imagine it happening like on your doorstep. You, you know, you could almost imagine yourself in that kind of scenario if given the situation. Um, yeah, so I think in terms of that, there's a lot that goes into British gangster films characters to focus and fix it more on their development mm. and their personas and what has motivated them to this point. You know, what's their triggers? What would trigger them in terms of a downfall? Um, whereas you don't necessarily get that level of detail in American gangster films or other gangster films. Do you know what's interesting? Like, it's a bit of a switch, but it's still within... You get all that in a British gangster film with that <laughs> realism. Whereas, at least for a certain time period, like late 90s into the 2000s, you had your romantic comedies that went, you know what, forget about logic. Mm -hmm. We're just going to give them the happiest ending and make it as quaintly British as possible. It's cheese. Yeah, there was a whole swing towards it, though. So there, there was, it was a massive... Like, Love, well, actually. There's a, there's a whole sort of uh, thing about, you know, apparently British people are supposed to be charming. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Well, I got <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, uh, and that, that sort of came out in those, those rom-coms. But I think it's also come out in those period pieces and the... And the um... Well, arguably in the gangster films. Yeah, Some of them yeah, talk very, actually... like, you know, proper. Well, yeah, yeah the, the, there's the ones that talk properly, but then there's also the charm of the sort of the, the geezer, isn't there? Yeah. The charm of the, you know... There's always... The, what's his name? Bricktop from Snatch, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Mm. I think it's always charisma. Yeah. And you never end up hating them. You only ever really empathise mm. with them. 
Well, on the gangster level, I think that the uh, yeah, the, the in the rom com, obviously, it's a slightly different thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, but you're always rooting. Just to... Yeah, but well, in, even in a rom com, and yeah. you guys probably wouldn't admit it. I'm, <laughs> I'm mad enough to admit it. But when you watch like a rom com like that, um, you are rooting for the characters and stuff. I don't know, like. I like you, Grant, nowadays. But you're about to say I like you, Ryan, but... Yeah. <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Grant's done... He does a lot of better stuff. Like We watched The um, the Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's new film, where he's going back to roots. Well, that's what it felt like. Hugh Grant was great in that. But for a long time, he was seen as the one we had to root for. And the way they did that is they didn't play off the fact that this guy can act. It was more go, go for the posh thing. And that's what it used to be selling <laughs> Go on. Go for the awkward posh thing, yeah. And, and as people know from films like Nottingham Hill, there's a very well-known, the, the, the racistness, the racistness, the, the racism in that kind of film, because it's all just white people. It's just white people in every single frame. It, it, was, it was like such a bad, kind of obvious sort of... Sell Whitewashing. Yeah, Whitewashing and, and doing yeah. it, weirdly, probably, to try and sell to America more, because it had Julia Robertson in the first place. And a lot of these films became stale very quickly. And you don't tend to see them anymore. You don't tend to see those romantic British comedies. Can you name one in the last three years? No, not no, really. I don't think you could. <laughs> Can you? No, because it's all gone to TV. I feel like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the romantic comedy is completely dominated by um, TV, especially with British stuff. And that's the thing, when you look at those sort of archetypes, it's still in people's minds, though. They have those, when they think of British cinema, they will still think of the Hugh Grant sort of films. Mm. Even though I can't even think of any films that weren't not having Hugh Grant in them. There must have other been romantic comedies that didn't just feature Hugh Grant. Mm, on a British sense, there was quite a lot. <coughs> you had, <coughs> well, I'm thinking, Bridget... Jones's diary. Nah, he's in that. Yeah, he is in he that. Is. And he's in about a boy. Yeah, he's in that. Notting Hill. Robin yeah. Keaton did the four four yeah. weddings and a funeral. I swear Love he's in actually. that. He's in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's in Love Actually. He was he was Jeez. so dominant. We could do a whole genre. like podcast <laughs> session on. <laughs> God, yeah, let's let's move on to something a little less silly. <laughs> horror, British yeah. horror. Yes, Br British so is totally, yeah. totally changed the subject. So, <laughs> really, well, it, it for me personally, Fiona, I think it kind of had a bit of a decline come the nineties. Like doing our research into this, we couldn't find a mass amount of really popular British films no. during the nineties. Um, but then horror there was, films. yeah, horror films. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, but then when you come into the, the noughties... There's a lot more. Yeah. You got like 28 Days Later. Yeah. Yeah, you got uh, The Descent. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the big one that had such a big impact that no one really kind of saw coming, Shaun of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was massive. Yeah. When did Creep come out? Creep so, was around, I think it was like 2005, 2004, yeah. around the same time. Yeah. I think like, the thing is, there have been so many swings of um, changes in horror throughout British culture. Because you've had some real powerful dominant forces like Hammer. Hammer Horror was such a powerful, like, world-renowned and respected with, you know, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and... Dracula. Yeah, they are completely part of that whole entire mythology. People sit Hammer right next door to the Universal Monsters. And that is, like, such a prominently British thing in that respect. Mm. And then you think of the more, like, cult British horror films... 
it gets a bit weird because some, some films you'd be like, is that a British or is that American? You can almost play a game doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I recently um, was watching a documentary on Hellraiser. And I didn't realise how British Hellraiser was, which maybe I'm just being really dumb because it's clearly set in Britain. It's got British actors. But I didn't realise the creative force behind it. Because like, it's always been such an American thing. So when I think of the character Pinhead, I think of like, he's just so much in that goth sort of horror genre. And most of the films from like the third onwards, he's always in America. It's weird. The first two, it's mostly because of the studio rights. The money went to America and they got... They, they stopped being involved. That's why they lost all their quality. But there are some horror films you just sort of forget. Because oh, a lot of gothic ghost stories set in old houses that aren't technically British films. They're just shot in Britain. Mm. You know? um, but then you get films that are probably not, you know are British as hell. And that's like The Wicker Man. Yeah. And as they've proven, you, you, you can't really remake it in America. <laughs> you can try it. Nick Cage might give you something which he sees as absurd as comedy, but whether it carries into a film, The Wicker Man is such a strange, unique experience when you watch the first one for the first time. And if you don't know what the ending is, it's genuinely quite horrifying. Just to watch this... Have you seen The Wicker Man? I haven't, no. I will not ruin the ending for you. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> Just ruin it for the audience. I'll, I'll plug my ears. <laughs> it, it plays into one of the key things that British horror has always done. And it plays into, sadly, one of those tropes of what British people are always seen as, repressed. Wicker Man is so much about repression because it's from that cop's perspective, trying to find out the, um, about the missing girl and then seeing this completely pagan cult who are all about sexuality and exploration and like everything that he's fought against, you know? And that is like, works so well in horror to have him being the hero of the prominent repressive British way. And then the bad thing is the fact that we are too repressed and we need to break out of that. And you know, like really, especially if you think that film was made in 72 or 73. So you're going again away from that swinging 60s. And just before Thatcher, who, you know, ruined everything, before it got to those times, it was that point of still trying to explore it. And you know, from what I know, we were probably a bit slower than, you know, other sex revolutions that were going on around time. The thing with The Wicker Man as well is The Wicker Man, it didn't do what a lot of directors got the opportunity to do, to leave. So like, he, the guy who made uh, The Wicker Man, he only made like maybe two films. And it's the same with another cult classic and personally my favourite British film of all time, with Nail and I. He made maybe three or four films, but that's the film people remember him from. It wasn't like when you have like Ridley Scott and all those directors who literally just got their one good film, disappeared straight away. But then on the flip side of that, you have the you have uh, filmmakers coming over to Britain and, and making films, and quite often that that sort of poses quite an interesting uh, view to look at British culture from. Um, like when you look at um, uh, blow up, for example, um, the view of Britain is. It, it, I mean, this is this is a, a the main character is a very cool guy. He's driving around in his Bentley, and he's just a photographer, and you know he has threesomes in it. But the whole film is like I think very deliberately 
depicts his life as boring, despite the fact that he's got this great life. He's just wandering about, he's got nothing to do, nothing to... And he's just, he's just bored out of his mind. And then one day he's photographing in, in a park and he just comes across a, a body in the background. And, and this becomes the big thing for his entire life. You know, everything gets focused on that. He becomes obsessed with it. And um, it was, it's just a really interesting way that you, at the same, around the same time um, in the 60s, obviously, Bond started off and you, you've got the, uh, this depiction of, you know, the cool guy um, that everyone wants to be that's uh, sleeping with women and driving around in his flashy cars and just living the life, but he, everything about him is confident and powerful and happy, and this guy is like almost the, the, the shadow of that kind of thing. It's, it's almost the opposing. He's got all of those things, but his life is still boring. Um, and I think that, like, yeah, when you, when you look at these, these directors who've come from uh, other countries and seen what... Uh, what Britain looks like to them and have put that on film you you often see more of an accurate depiction of what's going on because they they've come from outside of that sort of national bubble of mm. you know culture of what's considered cool and and so other such things maybe not so much so for for certain you know European film uh, filmmakers but there's still going to be a little bit of that where there's where there's a, a disconnect. And the other film I wanted to talk about in respect to that is um, Repulsion. What Polanski gave us a, a view there of was was what it what it feels like for you know uh, two two women uh, in a vulnerable position being you know not like they didn't they weren't they were clearly uncomfortable where they were living to a certain extent and living in Britain in in London. Um, both being French, both not speaking great English. I mean, they spoke relative amounts of English, but um, as far as I recall, it wasn't like they weren't totally comfortable communicating with everyone around them. That inability to communicate, um, it, 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 it made it feel like they, they had nowhere to turn. They were sort of locked in, they were shut in, and so um, it, it sort of played on the uh, other elements of the film that I won't go into too much detail because it's truly shocking and and powerful, that film, really, uh, I recommend it. I think as well, if you look at the, the last 10 years, I would, well, I would argue that there's probably been more of a decline in British films with well, certain archetypes. It's hard to say, like, because the thing is, archetypes aren't something that you necessarily want. But it, it gives you an idea of just what the industry is sort of delivering, I guess. So when it, when you're looking at there being less of that, it just feels like there's less of film movements. That's what it feels like. There's less of um, you get you do get working class films, but for us they're almost well, that's underground films now, isn't it? Because of the whole change of everything, where you've got anyone can make a film. There's there's always been an underground. Of course, there was British underground in the eighties with Let's Just Throw It In There, Michael J. Murphy. <laughs> but for the 70s 60s all these times but we don't know about them because sadly a lot of those still stayed underground yeah we look at now though and when you look at like independent working class films i think of the kind of films that people we know make that's working class films to me whereas the films that are going to get like the 300 grand budget the british films that get the, all the attention and they're about working class themes I feel weird calling them working class films because I'm like, well, they came from going through the, the, you know, they didn't go, oh, fuck it, we're going to go and shoot the story nonetheless. They still wanted the top actor. 
They didn't they do it in defiance yeah. of the system. They, they did it with the systems. Uh, and know, that's what British film feels like in general. It's got the permission now. Yeah. It can do all those films <clears throat> that it had to almost fight and create its own scenes. Now they can just do all of them. If the funding's there and there's a British name, potentially a British name actor or not a British name actor, it doesn't matter. They just do a couple of international festivals and that's your next British hit. Instead of a movement, and that's kind of depressing. I, I feel like our, yeah, the, the last 10 years, the, the kind of films that I think of, when you, when you think of like uh, what, uh, the beginning of the decade 2010, um, it was The King's Speech came out, didn't mm, it? Yeah. And, and since then, it feels like we've been focusing Everything's on, followed suit. Yeah, it's focusing on the high end of, of society in, in that respect of like, you know, royalty and... and, and I wouldn't even just say it's focusing on of... royalty as such. It's focusing on, focusing on um, like an over-the-top kind of scale as everything's got to be a spectacle. King's, King's Speech is probably slightly different because it was more of focused on two characters and trying to get overcome a condition that he had but as the years have gone on since then I think a lot of British films have scaled it up you think about the last two major British films really was 1917 and you could say Dunkirk arguably um, and they were massive spectacles well it's either that or it's Oscar Bates so it's like the theory of everything called the imitation game it's biographies of old British dead people that, I think where a love story can be tied in. I think that's also kind of what I mean is that you know you look at you've got big films from the last ten years of the the King's Speech. You think of uh, nineteen seventeen. Um, you know all of these historic pieces. All of these like uh, it's almost like Tory films, isn't it? Like I mean they're not. I'm not saying that they have a political agenda particularly. I'm just saying they fixate on moments of glory and and past history and uh, you know and, and those kind of aspects that uh, I just they, doesn't, I, I don't feel like that's what it is to be British uh, doesn't no and it, it's me. it's more kind of fixated on the empire that once was almost or going back to that yeah it's lost yeah so one of the things that it's probably trying to do is and imagine doing this with like 1917 is it takes maybe a working class citizen, but they're in a war environment, which probably happened, I imagine happened on a severe oh, course, scale. Yeah. But where that's lost from previous kind of archetypes of British film is um, it has to be a name now. And you don't really get well um, as much attention to detail as to what their backstory is as a character, where they come from before they were in war. Mm. Um, but yeah... That's, that's what I think. I think that's the main thing, is one of the problems with the film scene nowadays is it, it lacks a truly working class voice and there is a lack of working class actors. The game's changed, you know? Like, it's generally going to be someone from either an acting school or a film school or some sort of BFI connection or my dad was this person and this person was that person. And that's always been the industry, but... British in particular, that's what it feels like. The one plus side as an independent is that you, your market isn't here. We go to different VODs. We try to spread ourselves a little bit further to other places. So I don't particularly care about being in the British industry in that regards. I don't care. Because it's been shitting on us. Well, not us personally, but independent cinema has been shitting on it for ages. You know, I remember when the Tory government 
were very happy that the Queen's Speech won all the Oscars, even though they had just come. King's Speech. The, the King's Speech, sorry. <laughs> they had. Her Christmas. That was last her Sunday. Christmas speech. <laughs> Enjoy your turkey. They had essentially, by, by doing that, they, they did, they'd cut the funding from um, the BFI. They cut the film funding to put the focus on the Olympics. But they were so happy that all these British films, they were all funded by that. They were so happy for them. And it was just kind of like, well, fuck you. You got rid of that. You got rid of the opportunity for anyone else from any other level to go, you know what, I'm going to try and do it. And yeah, there are a lot of funding opportunities for filmmakers out there. But they're not aimed... It shouldn't really be like that. There should be more that there is just more of a voice where they want to make it more equal. But then that gets into the whole general ethos of the world. So, <laughs> so it's that, that's, a bit yeah. I was going to say, to, to lighten it a little bit. <laughs> this is normally my problem. <laughs> yeah. to, to be honest, I think if you flip that, as a filmmaker, with, being within this sort of situation that we're in right now in the film industry, I think it's a brilliant time to be a filmmaker you're more likely to get noticed or someone or have someone appreciate your work because there's more platforms to get your stuff onto. But also I think there's, there is a generally a sort of, there is a boredom to the certain, certain films that are, are mainstream coming out of Britain at the moment. And I think that, um, and generally in cinema generally at the moment, and I think that that, that does give sort of ground for working class filmmakers to develop. But, I think that in some respects, like the the idea of of films tied to sort of like uh, borders is kind of dying, especially when it comes to working class, where we don't really we're not working within the system of the country anymore. We're working with filmmakers from all across uh, in, in different places in the world. Um, even if that is still in the same country, it's all the way up in the other end of the country sometimes and that can that can sort of change the culture with which a film is sort of shaped by because you've got so many different influences on it and 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 stuff like that so i feel like we culture is going to be as always culture is going to shift but i feel like in the best possible way globalized globalized culture is is sort of going to arrive to us at some point in that in that respect thank you guys for listening and um, we hope you enjoyed episode 12 and um, as always give us a like please leave a comment with anything you would like us to review and uh, also please give us a subscribe but other than that we'll see you again next week enjoy the rest of your easter trash arts take out bye, bye.